0: Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers.
1: Welcome to MoFo Perspectives. I'm your host, Alexis Amesqua, and in this episode, we will discuss police brutality and the work that Morrison and Forrester has done to prevent, combat, and where it can rectify police brutality through civil rights litigation. I'm pleased to be speaking today with Arturo Gonzalez, one of the nation's top trial lawyers, Morrison & Forster's first Latino partner, and my personal friend and mentor. Arturo and I have known each other for over 15 years now, and I can personally vouch for his commitment to civil rights and pro bono work. Indeed, he and I have worked on one civil rights matter or another for the entirety of my career. There's a lot we could talk about today, but today we're going to focus on Arturo's views regarding the state of policing in the US today and his work fighting police misconduct. So welcome Arturo. I'd like to start with a little bit of background about yourself and if you could share what or who first attracted you to civil rights law.
0: Sure, thank you. So Joaquin Avila uh, was a Harvard Law School graduate from the mid 70s. And his focus was voting rights uh, law and voting rights uh, legislation. Uh, Joaquin called me, boy, it must have been almost 30 years ago now, and said that he had an interesting case that he needed my help. And the case involved uh, the very short version is uh, four women were arrested at a school board meeting because they were chanting, put us on the agenda. Uh, along with other people in the community when they weren't allowed to speak so the sheriffs were called they came in and they arrested these four latinas they were all subjected to a visual body cavity strip search and joaquin felt that they needed uh, civil rights uh, uh, counsel and in addition uh, criminal counsel because they were charged with a variety of misdemeanors so that was my introduction to civil rights law i took that case i tried the criminal case uh, three of the four women were acquitted of all charges. The, the fourth was acquitted of all but one minor uh, charge. And then I prosecuted that as my very first civil rights case, which, which we won.
1: I, I've heard that uh, you tell that story before about your work on that matter. Um, I'd love for you to share with the audience uh, the history and uh, take us through one of your most memorable cases. You're welcome to share more of the details about this matter Or if you have another you'd like to share.
0: Sure. Uh, So this matter actually rolled into the one that I wanted to talk about. This matter went to trial in Fresno Federal Court, the the case of the four women. The jury awarded the four women $1.45 million, which I think still is the most ever awarded for a strip search. About two years after that verdict, I received the phone call uh, from a a man who was... um, crying and obviously in distress, telling me that uh, they had shot his father. And again, I'll give you the short version. He said, they shot my father, even though he wasn't sure what had happened. Uh, What happened is this was an adult male uh, who had been called by a neighbor of his parents and was told, you better get over here. There's cops all over the place. So he went uh, to uh, his parents' house. He was not allowed in. Uh, This happened in Dinuba, California, outside of Fresno, the same town as the other case. And uh, so he didn't know what had happened. And what we later learned is that what had happened was that about seven o'clock in the morning, a SWAT team had come to the house, raided the house, and shot the father 15 times in the bedroom of his own home in front of his wife. Uh, The uh, police claimed uh, in a press conference that day that they did what they did because the father came at them with a knife. Uh, the mother said that wasn't true I swore it wasn't true and so we ended up uh, taking that case uh, there was a lot more to it it wasn't just uh, a shooting case it was also a fourth amendment unlawful seizure case because they took everybody in the house meaning the ones that survived the 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 mother who i believe was 60 years old uh, her youngest son who was 17 a daughter-in-law and a daughter-in-law's child there were like four or five people in the house Uh, who were taken to the police station, separated, uh, and held there for a substantial period of time for questioning, which, by the way, is illegal. You can't just take people to the police station. If you want to question them, you need to question them where they are. And so there were a lot of issues in the case, but that was memorable for a lot of reasons. Uh, When we tried the first case, we didn't receive any settlement offer whatsoever uh, from the defendants, and the police had a very strong record of winning in Fresno. And uh, this case, again, when it went to trial, the same thing, there was no settlement offer made. Uh, But um, we ended up trying the case in Fresno and the jury awarded the family $12.5 million, which I think still is the largest award for a police shooting in California.
1: That's an incredible story. Um, Lots of follow-up I could ask there. I think my first question is, as someone who uh, has Worked with you through the outset of my career and continue to do so. Now. So now, one of the things I'm always impressed with is you, you can tackle any any sort of claim, any sort of issue, and really prepare it for a jury and a judge. And I wonder, did you have a background? Had you gone to law school to specifically study civil rights law? Were these, you know, your these two matters your first foray into civil rights law, or is this something that you, you know, studied for some time?
0: When I received the phone call from Navila referring the first case to me, I didn't know what a civil rights case was. I didn't know what Section 1983 was, which is the statute that you use to prosecute civil rights cases. And no, I hadn't studied it in law school. and It's not something I had planned to do necessarily. I came to Morrison and Forster, a large law firm, understanding. That I would be representing corporations, but also uh, chose MOFO specifically because I knew I wanted to give back to the community. I wanted to do pro bono work. I wanted to represent people who needed my help. And these are exactly the kind of cases that I wanted to do. So I really kind of stumbled upon civil rights law. And uh, just once I got into it, it became very clear to me that there was a tremendous need, especially in the Latino community throughout the Central Valley, for people who are willing to represent uh, families who felt they'd been mistreated by police. I mean, I, I received hundreds of calls uh, after these you know, cases. And, you know, I've, I've I've taken, you know, probably dozens of these civil rights cases, but I've turned down 10 times more than I've taken. I just can't do them all. Uh, but there was a tremendous need. And uh, I, I just, I found it somewhat satisfying, but also somewhat uh, disappointing because no matter what I do, I can't bring back the person who's been lost. I can't undo the wrong but I can maybe do some justice and uh, make some changes along the way that hopefully will prevent uh, other families from having to go through the same experience.
1: One of the um, cases that you tried and that has always left an impression on me involved um, the death of a young boy also in the Central Valley. And I wonder if you could share some of that background for that matter.
0: Right. I had another case involving a SWAT team uh, for a Modesto, California. And in that case, the SWAT team raided a house. They were there early in the morning uh, raiding the house because they believed that the father was involved in some kind of narcotics. They didn't find any drugs. They didn't find any guns. They didn't find any money. They didn't find anything incriminating at all. But unfortunately, what they did do is they shot and killed his 11 year old son. Uh, The boy was laying uh, on his stomach in his own bedroom. The SWAT team had come in and told him to get down. So he, he got down. Obviously, he was probably scared to death. And uh, sadly, for reasons that maybe nobody will ever know, as he was laying there, the officer pointing the weapon at his back, fired. And they fired right through his heart and killed him instantly. So in that case, I actually did not try. That case I prosecuted and the defendants uh, agreed to settle the case for three and a half million dollars, which I think still is the most ever paid by the government for the unlawful killing of a child. I candidly wanted to try that case, And I don't want to get into any privileged uh, communications with the clients, but, you know, sometimes you decide not to try your case because uh, clients uh, may not want to go to trial. Uh, It's very difficult, as you can imagine, for parents to testify and, and relive these very difficult circumstances. In that case, the child's mother was also face down in the living room. Uh, being covered by a separate police officer. And when she heard the gunshot, she tried to get up instinctively. She was pushed down to the ground and she looked over to where the gunshot came from her son's bedroom and she, you know, she could see the stream of blood coming, you know, across her son's feet. Uh, You can just imagine uh, what that must be like and, and how difficult that is. And it's not, it's easy to understand why some people wouldn't want to relive that.
1: Sure. That I I I know I can't imagine um, as a parent myself or even just another human being that that is absolutely horrifying and I think about uh, and I've done it alongside you a few times but the great skill it takes to serve as counsel in these matters that are highly charged and emotional um, and also to guide. Plaintiffs who don't typically have a voice, who don't know what to do—you know—they're—they're they're, they're not necessarily sophisticated plaintiffs who know how to testify, and it's—it's it, extremely challenging, especially for parents to get up there. And I wonder if you had any reflections on that, on on what's worked, what's made you successful in that regard, and how you've been able to relate to clients or be able to bring out the best you can in them in these terrible times.
0: So these are very difficult cases, difficult not only emotionally but challenging legally. Um, in our society, most people uh, believe police officers. Most people would like to believe. I realize that in, in recent years that started to change a little bit, but historically, and I still think most people they want to believe police officers are honest. I mean, they they, they want to give them the benefit of the doubt. So there's a real challenge in getting. jurors to understand that the officers in this case may have done something wrong. And then there's a challenge sometimes in having your clients just understand the system and what's going to happen. And there, I think um, that's why it's so important, both for big law firms to get involved, because these cases are expensive and they're challenging, and also for lawyers of color to get involved, people who are from the communities where the victims are from. Uh, I think that uh, they have a better chance, perhaps, of getting either the clients or witnesses, other people in the community to open up, to talk to you, to tell you what happened. For example, when I go to these communities, I rarely, rarely wear a tie. I mean, I, I, I almost want to say I never do, unless I'm going to court that day. I always dress casual. I try to make them feel comfortable. I don't want them to think that they're talking to somebody too formal. And that has helped me to get uh, people to talk, to open up, to tell me what happened. And, and it is challenging. It is challenging. Uh, many times my clients don't uh, even speak English. Uh, Mrs. Gallardo uh, did not speak English, and yet she testified in federal court about what happened to her, to her husband. And it, it was really dramatic.
1: The other reflection I have as you're speaking is just how familiar these themes are even today. I know some of these matters you you tried and handled many years ago, and yet today we're still facing the same issues of officers uh, raiding people's homes in the middle of the night. Uh, you know the recent murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor as she slept in her bed. You know this week we heard about Jacob Blake being shot in the back seven times. In other words, these issues are still around today. Um, and we have, you know, reminders every day of the distrust of police. And specifically, we've been hearing a lot about it in the black community these days. I, I, I wonder, as someone who's handled this type of civil rights litigation for decades now, what do you think has gone wrong here? What do you feel is going wrong?
0: Well, um, there's a lot to say in response to that question, but I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Compliance and de-escalation. Uh, We need to train our children, especially in communities of color, to always comply with law enforcement. We need to train them how they should behave if they're ever pulled over by law enforcement in a car. Uh, For example, they should always keep their hands where they can be seen. In fact, if I were to tell somebody right now what you should do, if you are ever pulled over, first, roll down your window. And second, uh, put your hands where they can be seen and do not move them and I say roll down your window because otherwise you may move your hand from the steering wheel to roll down the window and the officer may feel threatened by that move so roll down your window first put your hands on the steering wheel and don't move wait for the officer to come answer whatever questions the officer has Uh, always know where you have your registration in your vehicle so that you're not fumbling around looking for it if it's in the glove compartment tell the officer once he or she asks it's in the glove compartment. I'm going to open it. Try to avoid having anything in your glove compartment that might look like a weapon. Sometimes even a long black flashlight can look like a weapon. If you have that in there, tell the officer it's in my glove compartment. I'm going to open it. There's a long black flashlight in there. I just want you to know that so that you don't get startled by that. You know, communicate, comply. Uh, that's number one. What I would say we need to teach our our, our children from the officer standpoint. It's training. It's de-escalation. I mean, look. There are too many examples of officers failing to de-escalate a situation. It is a difficult job. It is an extremely difficult job, but they have got to de-escalate. And part of the problem is that many people who they are confronting are people who have mental issues. Maybe they're on a narcotic uh, or maybe for some other reason, uh, maybe they're bipolar, but they have mental issues that make it difficult challenging for them to communicate. And these officers frequently are not trained on how to deal with those people. And and that's why we need better training. And we need to make sure that our police forces have people who are specifically trained on how to deal with people who might be mentally challenged. Because pulling out a gun is not the answer in that situation.
1: Do you think there's anything the police can do to build more trust in communities of color?
0: Yes, one thing that has to happen that absolutely has to happen is we need to hire more police officers from the communities they serve period hard stop. I mean, no more, you know, baloney about, you know, people not being qualified. Come on. You can train people to be good cops and you've got to start getting more people from the communities of color so that they go there and they serve their communities. Have you noticed that in almost every case, Almost everyone in the last two years or so that've been high profile where somebody's been shot running away, shot in the back, shot in almost every case, the police officer is white. Now, I am not saying I am absolutely not saying you can't have white police officers or white police officers are bad. no that's not my point. My point is I think that there's a cultural barrier that people are are, are struggling with. I think I think that in many cases, If you had officers of color in the exact same situation, maybe the outcome would be different. Maybe instead of pulling the gun, the officer would put his hands up and say, whoa, hold on a second. Hey, listen, let's just talk to me, okay? Look, I grew up around the corner, all right? All right? I don't know if you know me, but I grew up around the corner over there on on Fig Street. You know what I mean? Things like that can make a dramatic difference. And So I think we need to do a better job diversifying our police force and then getting the police officers to get out into the community proactively. Go out there, mingle with people, get to know the people in your community. Uh, That that is something that I think would go a long way. And some communities have started to do that, but but we need to do better.
1: There's been a lot of discussion around police reform, and we've seen a lot of uh, articles and slogans about, quote, defunding the police. What do you make of that? And what are, in your view, some of the most common misconceptions about this call to action?
0: All right. First of all, we got to take this phrase defunding and put it in the shredder. All right. It, 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 it's absolutely the wrong phrase to use, and it makes it far too easy for people to claim that anybody who's looking for reform is a radical who's trying to eliminate the police. I mean, all you need to do is look at the Republican convention that's going on now, not to be biased for politically, but there's a lot of talk about, you know, they want to get rid of the police. And it's because of this phrase defunding. we got to get rid of that phrase. Really, what we're talking about is, should we reallocate resources within the police department? In other words, shouldn't we be using some of those funds to train officers on different tactics? Shouldn't we be using some of those funds to bring in people who are not necessarily police officers who carry a gun, but who can still be law enforcement officers, somebody who's trained perhaps in dealing with people who have you know, mental issues? So that in certain circumstances you can call them to come and they can try to address the situation and they may not even carry a gun, you know that's what defunding really means. It's really a reallocation of resources, but nobody wants to get rid of the police department. It's simply are there better things that we can be doing to train the officers? Is there more that we can be doing proactively to try to prevent crime from happening in the first place? That really is what it means, and I do think that there's um, a lot of benefit to having discussions about that in the community. You know, I had a case once where there was a woman who was locked inside of an apartment that wasn't hers and she wouldn't come out and she was screaming and screaming and she wasn't well. She was not well mentally. She had issues. She needed medication. But instead of calling someone to talk to her, to calm her down, two police officers showed up and within minutes they kicked the door down, went in with guns drawn and shot her five times and killed her. You know, I... That, that, that case really bothered me and it still does because I think if they had had somebody come and speak to her and just talk to her, it's a perfect example of where you need to deescalate a situation where there's no urgency whatsoever to go inside. And, and that's what I think we need to be talking about is can we be training officers differently, allocating resources differently, so that not every person who is in charge of enforcing the law is wearing a gun and not every person is called to every situation. You know, if you have a, a, a child in, in middle school who's had some issue and the police are called, is it really necessary to have two people show up with guns? Maybe not. Those are the discussions that need to take place.
1: Yeah, and I'm reminded of another matter you and I handled in Fresno, where a brother was, I think he was in his early 20s, was having some sort of mental health breakdown and was seeing things and the walls were coming after him and he ended up with this the sister called the police. She didn't know what else to do. And he ended up being shot in the back three times. And if there had been a professional and resources had been allocated to what to do to de-escalate when someone has a mental health issue or an addiction issue, he could very well be alive. My my other thought on defunding the police, because it's a conversation I've had a lot, especially with my family members Is that it's not only about reallocating resources within the police department, it's reallocating resources within one's community. And those of us fortunate to live in a specific socioeconomic status community know that so much of our taxpayer dollars go to schools and after school programs, they go to community centers. And so those places are funded just as much funding as the police department. And if you have, as you say, in an example of a middle schooler with an issue, you're just as likely to to be. Approached by a school counselor or a coach or all sorts of other resources before the police ever get involved. That's very unique to certain communities, and unfortunately, in communities of color, so often uh, the criminal system is, you know, the first place for people. So I, I understand where you're coming from when you're talking about defunding. Do you have any thoughts on what you think needs to happen to reduce the violent incidents between the police and members of the Black and Brown community?
0: Well, I mentioned de-escalation and compliance um, and educating people, but one other thing that has been a problem in my mind uh, since I first started working on these cases is the shoot to kill approach that's used by law enforcement. Law enforcement officers are trained that if you're gonna fire your weapon, you know shoot to kill. Now they may not use that phrase shoot to kill. instead they might say something like shoot until the threat is gone uh, but really, People are trained to shoot center mass, hit the person right in the chest, and I I question whether that's always necessary. Yeah, I mean, I just give you. There's tons of examples, but I'll just give you one. I mean, recently, here in my community in the East Bay, there was a person at target who was you know talking in a way that made it clear uh, he had a mental issue, and law enforcement came, and the person ended up grabbing a baseball bat which i would be the first to admit is is threatening and can, can't harm you if somebody whacks you with a baseball bat. So I I, I understand that the, that can be a dangerous weapon. But the officer, in that kind of a situation, in my view, if you don't have time to grab your taser and tase the person, and if you have to shoot, why not shoot him in the leg? Why not shoot him in the leg? Now, a police officer might say, well, if you shoot him in the leg, he can still, you know, swing the bat at you. Well, if you're not within, you know, five feet of the guy, even if he swings, he's not going to hit you. So there are circumstances, in my view, where if you have to shoot, you don't have to shoot center mass. It depends on the circumstances. Shoot him in the leg. And a police officer might say, or somebody might say, yeah, but if the person's high on drugs, that's not going to stop him." Well, that may be true. And you've got plenty of time to shoot him in the chest if you have to. But in many cases that I have seen, I believe that if an officer had shot someone in the leg. Uh, They could have eliminated the threat, the imminent threat, and uh, not caused the person to lose life. So it's just, again, I I question whether you always have to shoot to kill. Obviously, we want to try to avoid shooting, want to try to avoid, you know, that kind of situation. If you have time to get your taser out, if somebody has a beanbag gun, there are other means of force that you should try to use first. But if you have to use your gun, I just question whether you always have to shoot to kill.
1: I think that's an important point and leads to a related question, which is what are other policy changes that the police could be doing here to improve upon its relationship with communities of color and reduce the overall violence between the two? So I wondered if you could speak to any important policy changes that any of your cases have been able to have implemented, or if you think there are other policies that the police should implement in the future.
0: Right. Uh, There are so many things. I mean, you know, what I would say in general is there needs to be more communication between police officers and the community they serve. A couple of examples of policy changes that came out of the litigation that I've been involved in, and I've got a long list, but I'll just list a couple. I already mentioned that in Danuba, they got rid of the SWAT team altogether. In my view, small towns do not need SWAT teams. If your county has a SWAT team, if there are big cities nearby that have SWAT teams, Small towns don't need them. If you're going to have a SWAT team, you've got to train them, and most small towns don't have the budget to do that. Uh, Another example is uh, SWAT teams used to point their weapons directly at a person's back when the person's face down on the ground. In my view, that isn't necessary. And in the settlement that we reached with Modesto, uh, Modesto and other police agencies who had the same insurer agreed to no longer do that. They'll instead point the weapons at the ground right next to the person. You have plenty of time to shoot them in the back if the person you know, becomes a threat. Uh, instead of pointing right at the back, and that way you avoid situations like what may have happened in our case, where maybe the officer panicked or somebody bumped into him or something, and you end up shooting somebody in the back for no reason. Another example that should be obvious is in cases of mistaken identity, we've gotten uh, a police agency to agree to check fingerprints compare fingerprints it may seem obvious but it doesn't always happen officers say that you know many times when they arrest somebody the person says it's not me it's not me and uh, sometimes they get tired of hearing that but sometimes it really isn't that person uh, i had a case where a an, an elderly latina woman was arrested and she had a heart condition and taken to jail without her medication and it was the wrong person she had a similar name now she was inches shorter it should have been obvious that it was the wrong person but you know Officer took her in and she kept telling everybody, the arresting officer, the booking officer, she kept telling everybody, it's not me. Why am I here? I haven't done anything. And nobody ever bothered to compare her fingerprints to the person who had been arrested and for whom a warrant had been issued. And had they done that, they would have known it wasn't her. Uh, So there are a lot of examples of things that police can do. But, you know, I think training is key. Um, Oh, here's another one. A good example is what just happened recently where, you know, someone was shot, I guess it was outside of Milwaukee, you know, seven times in the back. Most of the time, most of the time, if you really have to shoot, and in that circumstance, I question whether they even had to shoot, but let's not even go there. Most of the time when you do have to shoot, two bullets is all you have to fire. Bang, bang. And there's a phrase for this that the uh, police agencies use. Many police agencies train their people to only shoot twice, bang, bang, and then you assess, pause and assess. And trust me, you've got plenty of time to shoot the person more, if the person keeps coming, but bang, bang, and then assess. Th- that I think might save some lives because there are just too many examples that I've seen. And like the one that just happened seven times in the back, was that really necessary to shoot the guy seven times? I don't think so. I don't think so. I had another case where you had somebody in a truck who was obviously uh, not well, and he'd become unconscious as he was driving, and his truck just slowly, slowly, slowly went up on somebody's lawn and then hit a fence and stopped, but the engine was still running. And when the police officer arrived, he was standing on the sidewalk with his gun pointed at the guy. Not sure why he even had his gun pointed at the guy, but he did. Uh, He emptied his clip. Uh, 12 rounds. He emptied his clip, reloaded, and fired some more. Wow. And the guy in the truck didn't even have a gun. He was unconscious. So, you know, again, just an example of people firing too many times. Maybe if you just fire twice and then pause, maybe you would have realized that it wasn't necessary to fire any further, and maybe he wouldn't have died.
1: Yeah. Especially as you phrase it, they make so, so much sense. Hopefully, um, others would agree. And I wondered if you think the recent political climate has any impact on civil rights cases.
0: I hope it does. I hope it will lead to more settlements that involve some kind of policy change or better training for the officers. Uh, as I mentioned, my first two civil rights cases, the, the government offered zero. I mean, they didn't offer anything. They were so confident the victory. They weren't going to pay a dime. And that is slowly starting to change. Uh, I think these insurers, the agencies, the police departments themselves are starting to realize that jurors are now a little bit more open minded about considering the possibility that the ouster have done something wrong. And, uh, and that I think hopefully will lead to, again, more settlements uh, so that some justice is brought to the families and more importantly, policy changes to try to prevent the thing from happening again.
1: You've played a leading role here at the firm in taking on police misconduct cases, and you've mentored a number of associates over the years, including myself. You noted at the beginning of the podcast why you think it's important to have attorneys from diverse backgrounds get involved. I wondered if you could expand on that a bit more and share why it's been one of your uh, goals to have junior attorneys from diverse backgrounds handle these types of cases?
0: Well, look, in many of my cases, the clients or certain witnesses didn't speak English. So first of all, if you have a lawyer who speaks the language, that goes a long way towards gaining the trust and confidence uh, of the client second if you have somebody who's from a similar community regardless of language that can go a long way towards gaining the trust of witnesses and clients and it's it's unfortunate but what i have seen over the years is that vast majority of these cases a vast majority the victims are brown or black and i you know i don't want to get into a large commentary about you know why sociologically that's happening but many Many black and brown victims of uh, police uh, misconduct. Again, if you get people from those communities to represent these folks, I think you're going to have a better chance uh, of getting them and witnesses who are oftentimes reluctant to come forward and testify, you know, quote unquote, against the police. You get people to open up. And so I think it's wonderful that uh, over the years, and, and I'm th- I've been doing this 30 years now, I've been at the firm about 35 years. I can't tell you how many associates have come to the firm, very eager to work on these types of cases, and that gives me gives me great joy.
1: You've also talked a lot about, at least with me, um, how juries are diverse, and you know, depending on the jurisdiction, it also helps to have the panel of lawyers for the plaintiff uh, reflect what the jurors look like, and that's something I know you and I have talked about over the years.
0: Right. Yeah. Two things there. Um, There has been a huge change and the composition of the jury from the time that it started to the present. Uh, When I tried that first case that I told you about, my recollection is that I had an all white jury. And, uh, you know, my my clients, uh, the four women were all Latinas. And that's probably one reason why the defendants didn't offer a penny, because they assumed correctly that they would get an all white jury. And in those days, all white juries almost always I am tempted to say always voted in favor of the police. I, I don't know of any other significant case where law enforcement had lost in Fresno before ours. Uh, and so the fact that the jury pools have now changed is also another factor that makes juries a little bit more open-minded and willing to consider a plaintiff's case.
1: In closing, I wondered if you'd get your thoughts on what we as lawyers can do to ensure the fair treatment uh, for communities of color.
0: First of all, I think lawyers are in a prime position to help. You got to remember, we are the only people who can stand up in a courtroom and speak on someone else's behalf. And what makes these cases so important, and this is what I try to drill home to people, is that these cases involve the Bill of Rights. I always tell the jury that. I educate the jury that, you know, when this country was founded, we had two constitutional conventions. The first one was about what kind of government are we going to have? And we came up with the three branches. But then they had to have a totally separate convention to talk about what rights would the people have. And they came up with a list. And one of those is the Fourth Amendment, you know, unreasonable searches and seizures. And when somebody is shot, that's considered a Fourth Amendment case. And so what we're here to talk about is the Bill of Rights. Because if somebody believes that the government has violated the Bill of Rights, what do they do? You don't go to the governor. You don't go to the president. You don't go to the mayor. You go to court. And who decides whether or not the government has violated the Bill of Rights? It's not the judge. It's you. And you look right at them. It's you. It's going to be a truck driver. It's going to be a teacher. It's going to be an accountant. It's going to be a homemaker. You're going to decide whether this conduct is acceptable. And that empowers them. And so the young lawyers need to understand that's how important this is. This is the Bill of Rights we're talking about. And if we don't defend the Bill of Rights, who will? So go to a law firm where they're going to let you do this kind of work. I remember at Harvard Law School, the only thing that kind of intimidated me at all was that I didn't know anything about law firms and all of my classmates did. And I went to the placement office and I asked the nice lady there, she give me some help. And she told me about pro bono work and she recommended two firms. And one of them was Mofo. And thank God she did that. And thank God I came because 35 years later, I'm still here. And the reason I'm still here mainly is because they've allowed me to do this kind of work. And so I'm very grateful, uh, not only for the opportunities that this firm has given me, but for all of the associates and partners who have worked and continue to work with me on these cases. I couldn't do them on on my own. I I need the help. And I've just received some tremendous help from you and others. And uh, I'm very grateful about that.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Arturo. This is the end of our MoFo Perspectives episode on police brutality and civil rights litigation combating police misconduct. Once again, I'm your host, Alexis Amesqua, speaking with Arturo Gonzalez. Thank you for joining us.
0: Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.